Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. Uh, after being gone for a couple of weeks, it's good to be back with you again this morning. I, w- I want to encourage you. Uh, I am so grateful uh, for all of you and for what God is doing in our church. It just hit me this morning. Jonathan, if you see him you know, get up and leave early, he's not upset. He's going to preach at, Bere- at, excuse me, at Cypress Ridge Presbyterian, which is our sister church here in Winter Haven. At the same time, Jeff's going to be leaving a little early to go preach at Berea. So your pastors are preaching in three different places this morning. That we have that many pastors, that we have that many gifted men that can go to that many places is just a a remarkable thing. And so we are bearing a lot of weight of ministry, not just in this church, but all over the city. And uh, it just kind of struck me this morning. I was really grateful and just wanted to to let you know so that you could be encouraged uh, that God is doing neat things. He continues to... Uh, develop a great staff to be working here and serving uh, the church. So in that, uh, with that in mind, please let me reiterate what Joe said. Come tonight. It's a big deal uh, to install a guy who is going to be the pastor not only of children and, and students in our church, but also of families. And so this is, a, this is installing a pastor, and that's a big deal, and it's worth your consideration. So I would just encourage you, uh, I guess that's the word, exhort you maybe is the word, Come back, even though we don't do a lot of stuff on Sunday night, come back tonight. It'll be worth your time, and it'll be an encouragement to Brandon and Rachel and their family. So please uh, be mindful of that. Five o'clock tonight. Uh, We continue in a series this morning in the Gospel of Luke. And so we've been here for quite a while, and we're going to be in this Gospel for quite a bit more. What's happened is there's been a shift in the action of the Gospel, because to this point, Luke has been recording Jesus' ministry in the north in in the area of Galilee, where he was from. But now, we're, in chapter 9, he's turned his face deliberately towards Jerusalem, and from this point on, he is venturing down the road towards the cross. And so the rest of the Gospel chronicles his journey to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And so whereas the first part of the Gospel is really aimed at answering this question, who is Jesus? The second part of the Gospel, beginning in chapter 9 and then on in 10, and now we're to chapter 12 now, To the end, the question it's meant to answer is really, what does it mean to be his disciple? What does it look like to follow him as he goes down the road to the cross? Now, 
one of the features of this journey, which we looked at last week, but it's here again this week, and so we have to highlight it yet again. One of the features of that journey towards the cross is the increasing hostility that he experiences from the religious leaders who hate him and who ultimately plot to kill him. And so a principle that we could, um, that we could agree upon together this morning from the dramatic tension of Luke's gospel would be this, that the gospel, Jesus' ministry, and for us, the gospel of his ministry, his work and his person on our behalf, is met everywhere in Luke's gospel with great joy and celebration by sinners... But at the same time, it produces ire and hostility in the religious people and the religious leaders. It's been a major theme in Luke's gospel so far. In chapter 5, Jesus is the bridegroom. He is uh, the bringer of new wine. And what do weddings and wine have in common? Joy. Celebration. It's a theme of that great passage in Luke 15, the three parables side by side by side. Concluding with the parable of the prodigal son where, where uh, the, the lost son is brought home. And it's meant to illustrate the joy of heaven in the triumph of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. So a man loses a sheep and then he finds it and he gathers his friends together and they celebrate that his lost sheep is now found. And then a woman loses a coin and she sweeps the house and she finds it. And then she calls her neighbors together to celebrate with her because she's found this very rare very valuable coin. And then the third parable is a father loses his son and then he finds him and he calls the village together to celebrate. And there's so much... Luke 15 is all about joy. And then it comes to an abrupt halt when the older brother comes home. His response is quite the opposite. He is angry at all of the celebrating that's going on at his younger brother's return. And it's a picture of what was happening in Jesus' ministry. And when the parable there in Luke 15 ends, the younger brother, representative of the sinners and the tax collectors that are surrounding Jesus, is in his father's house celebrating and being celebrated. But the older son, who is representative of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and religious people today, is outside sulking and shaking with rage and he refuses to come in and join the party. It's a picture of what's happening in Jesus' ministry. It's a picture of the response of the gospel, even in our midst today. And this dynamic is what led to this confrontation that Jonathan preached to us from in in Luke chapter 11. The confrontation that Jesus has, the woes that he gives to these Pharisees. But even though the scene has shifted here in Luke 12, we've gone past this event. Jesus still has this on his mind. He turns to his disciples here in verse 1 of this chapter, if you look there with me. And he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The text says that he says this to his disciples first. It's a bad translation, I think. Instead, the Greek means that this was his first teaching. In other words, this was the most important lesson. This is the thing that, you know, you'll hear somebody who's speaking publicly say, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, this is what I want you to hear. And that's what Jesus is saying to his guys. If you don't learn anything else, learn this. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If you're going to live as Jesus' disciple... You have to deal with your inner Pharisee. You have to deal with the fear of man. That's what these verses are about. And so, together this morning, let's just talk a little bit about this issue of the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus says, beware of it. It's the thing that can, that can destroy and undermine your discipleship to him. And so we have to deal with it as well. And so just three points, and there are the three points in the outline that I gave you that you have there. Uh, the, the leaven of the Pharisees, what is it? What's underneath it or where does it come from? And then lastly, how can we avoid it? 
So the Pharisee, the leaven of the Pharisees, what is it? Where does it come from? What's the source? And ultimately, how can we avoid it or what's the cure? Okay, so those are the three points, and let's just walk through them together uh, briefly this morning. Okay, first, the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Well, what's the phrase mean? That's the first thing we have to do, right? We have to answer that question. What is this leaven? Well, it's an image that describes the influence of the teaching of the Pharisees and the way that it might make its way into, you know, into and kind of get into the new community of Jesus' disciples. Kind of the way, just a little yeast. If you add a little yeast to the dough when you're making bread, the, the yeast activates the entire dough of bread. Leaven is a metaphor for sin in the Bible. There's something very sinful, Jesus is saying, and very subtle, I think, about the Pharisees' approach to spiritual things uh, that looks very good, but, but Jesus is very concerned about. And what is it? What is it that he's so concerned about? And this is what we talked about at length. He talked about this at length in the last chapter. And we could summarize all of it because we don't want to belabor what Jonathan has already said to us. If we summarized it, or if I had to make a summary of it, I would put it this way. Uh, and this is kind of the launching pad for everything else that we'll say this morning. And it's just that the Pharisees came at life empty and needing to be filled Disciples of Jesus should come at life full and overflowing and quiet love for others. Let me say that again. There's a big difference. The Pharisees came at life empty, and as a result, all of their life was crafted in order to fill the inner emptiness of their life. They came at life empty and needing to be filled. Jesus would have his disciples come at life full and overflowing in the power of the Spirit, overflowing in quiet love for others. You remember what Jesus said in the verse from last week, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat and the greetings in the marketplace, verse 43 of chapter 11. They had a deep need to be recognized in the community, they, to be given special treatment because of their position. Why? Because they're empty on the inside. They're insecure. They're unsure of their standing with God. And their life is being fueled literally by the respect and the admiration of others. Now, we have to talk about our culture a little bit in order to understand this. And this is the assumption of pop psychology, this, this idea we could characterize how, how psychology approach, approaches care for human beings in our day in this way, that they, they, we define the person as psychological needy. If there's a problem, then it's because we have a need that's going unmet. If I'm unhappy, then it's because I have a need for community or for relationship or for love, and for whatever reason that, that need is not being satisfied or fulfilled. But the problem is, is it's subtle, but it immediately begins to... Me, you know, it leads me to think of my life, well, I, I'm unhappy, so it's somebody else's fault. Somebody's failing me. The institution is somehow broken. And it really began with Sigmund Freud, but it came to its best articulation in Abraham Maslow's self-actualization theory and his hierarchy of needs. If you remember from, you know, probably sometime in high school, you guys dealt with this in some kind of generic sociology or psychology class. Uh, that, that, you know, Maslow said that, that we are like empty cups waiting to be filled. And there's some basic needs, and then if we can get those filled, then we move on to some greater needs and so forth on up the pyramid. But, but, the, but the image is, is we're like, human beings are like empty cups needing to be filled. The problem is, is that sort of thinking leads to a victimization and entitlement culture where the most important thing, the driving force of an individual's life, is their sense of need. What the Bible would say about that is that's a greenhouse for idolatry. Because, of course, whatever you think you need can quickly become, it can become just a euphemism for an idol. If you need other people accept, to accept you, then you'll be 
enslaved and controlled by their opinion of you. If you need to be loved, then you'll... The same thing. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. They are living from this deep sense of need and inner emptiness and despair and uncertainty about their standing with God. And, and, and so what it's done in them is it's caused them to take all of their energy and to begin to live for the sake of the, their public. To stand in the synagogues and make prayers so that people kind of stop what they're doing and say, oh, there's, you know, look at that Pharisee, isn't he such a great guy? Or to have people honor them with the best seats at the table so that everybody around knew who the most spiritual, most important person was. They're living for the sake of their public and for the sake of the public reception that they're getting. And if you act for the sake of the public, then it's a sign you're not okay on the inside. That There's something missing deep, deep down in you. The more you need to put on a show so that other people will take notice of you, it's a sign... Uh, you, it's because you don't you feel invisible. You feel invisible, and the one thing the human heart can't tolerate is to be invisible. Now, what's interesting is as we go along there in that verse, Jesus says this is hypocrisy. You see that verse one: "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees," which is hypocrisy, and this is why it's such a problem. It's it's not real. It's a show. I mean, that Greek word there for hypocrite refers to a play actor in Jesus's day. Actors used masks, and so if you were happy, if you were meant to be playing a happy role, uh, then you'd wear the joyful mask. You remember the old pictures of the old movie theaters of the, you know, the, the mask that had the smiley face on it? You put that over your face, and so even if you were sad and you were playing a happy role, then you wouldn't see behind the mask, and you could be happy even if you didn't feel happy. Okay, and that's what all good acting is like, isn't it? And I said this a few months ago, that the actors who receive nominations for Academy Awards are those who are able to so thoroughly transform themselves into the role that they become something they're not. They literally become somebody else. The real them disappears into the character. So Tom Hanks literally becomes Forrest Gump right before your very eyes, even though you've seen him in a million other roles, right? uh, Daniel Day-Lewis becomes Abraham Lincoln. It's amazing to watch. He's not Daniel Day-Lewis anymore. He's Abraham Lincoln, and I think I said, but, but then there's, you know, then there are the actors, uh, Keanu Reeves, for example, who no matter what role, he's the same guy in every role. That's bad acting. The Matrix is awesome. That's bad acting, okay? The really good actors are the ones that you forget who they really are because they become so absorbed in the role. And the teaching is this. This is hypocrisy, Jesus says. And the teaching is just that that this is a sinful inclination of the human heart to want to divert attention away from itself and from what it's really like. That every single one of our hearts, there's a sinful inclination to want to divert attention away from ourselves and from what we're really like. We see this in Genesis 3, don't we, when Adam and Eve sinned and it says there that they realized that they were naked and felt shame. And what happened next? What was their very first impulse? They hide. They sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. And when that didn't work, then, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, they dove behind the nearest bush, bush. So our sinful condition has created in us a natural inclination to hide. I mean, in John 3, Jesus says that those who do wicked things love the darkness rather than the light and refuse to come to the light for fear of being exposed. That's our worst nightmare, isn't it? To, to be exposed like that, to show up at the first day of school in your underwear and have everybody laugh at you. Almost every single one of us has had that nightmare. It's because it's the deepest nightmare of our hearts. And so the heart is constantly working overtime on image management. It wants to divert attention away from what it's really like. And it does this by putting on a show. 
by being someone in public that's different than the person that you are in private, by creating a persona. So, so the text would force us to ask, do you have a persona? Right? Dana Carvey's church lady. Right? That's a persona. Are you the spiritual guy? You know, we, we laugh because I, do you know this about pastors? Pastors have like pastor mode, pastor voice. Are you all familiar with this? Oh, he's in pastor. You know, that's his pastor voice. Right? Do you have, do you, like, maybe you're not a pastor, but do you have like a church, are you, do you have a church voice? Right? Do you, are you, are you, uh, do you use a different voice? Excuse me, different voice or different language when you pray than when you're just having a conversation? Right? There's conversation and there's, oh, now we're praying, so I'm going to change the King James English now. <laughs> right? Now, okay, now we're back. Because, uh, you know, I mean, it's subtle, right? But that's, are you, are you the funny guy? Are you the funny guy? Do you, is that your persona? Do you crack jokes to get other people to laugh? Because it's really uncomfortable when the conversation starts to get deep, so we want to keep things at the surface level. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them, Jesus says. See, the leaven of the Pharisees, which destroys discipleship, is to focus all of your attention on the exterior and to ignore the interior life of the heart. To worry about how you appear before the people instead of paying attention to the desires and the motivations and the reasonings of your own heart. The leaven of the Pharisees is to be content with the outside of the cup being clean while the inside is full of all kinds of wickedness. Pride and greed and envy and jealousy and self-pity and so forth. I've been married for 18 years now. Learned a lot in those 18 years. Uh, and one of the things uh, that became very clear early, very early, and, I'm, and now it's funny how this, you know, all of the things that we, all the, the mess that we put our parents through is revisited upon us and our children, I'm sure, a lot of the time. One of the things that I learned very early in my marriage that I'm now learning and dealing with my kids is that Ashley's definition of clean and mine were very, very different when we got married. Has this happened in anybody else's marriage? So for me, clean meant that everything was put away. It didn't matter where you stuffed it, as long as you couldn't see it. Ashley had to instruct me, and she did so brilliantly, that that is not clean. That just because you can't see the dirt does not mean that it's not still dirty. And, and so, I, you know, I, I mean, it sounds so stupid, but I really kind of like had to learn this. That, you know, in order to really get things clean, you have to move the furniture. Because we all know what it's like under there if you don't move it for like two years, right? And it's not clean unless you do that. You have to move the furniture. You have to, you have to dust. <laughs> this is, this, again, it sounds like, you know, I, I don't know why I can't. But you have to dust the bookshelves and the surfaces before you vacuum the floor. Because when you, du- right, ladies, right, men, when you dust here, the dust falls there. And then you got to, it sounds like, duh, but I, I never got it. You have to pick up the rug and sweep not things underneath the rug, but sweep things out from underneath the rug in order to clean them up. I didn't know this. And listen, spiritual transformation is much more, much more than behavioral modification. It's heart change. And so to be clean, what Jesus is teaching us here is that there is a work that has to be done in the places of your heart that you yourself can't even reach. In the deep, dark crevices of your life where only God's spirit can go. But the inner Pharisee, on the other hand, sees sanctification as a dress rehearsal for the upcoming role. 
So Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This leaven that is about living for the sake of the public and putting on a show and trying to draw attention to yourself because on the inside you're empty and insecure. But that's the shallow end of the pool as far as what Jesus is teaching us here in these verses. In the next paragraph, he moves to the deep end. He gets behind all of this to the deeper issue. He says the problem with these religious leaders and the problem with all of us is that we live with the fear of man instead of the fear of God. Look here, verse, verses 2 and 3, or he goes on in verses 4 and beyond. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do, but fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You see, the leaven of the Pharisees is built. It's a life built on the fear of man. They feared man instead of fearing God. Or if you want to turn it around and state it positively, in John 12, Jesus says, They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In John 5, Jesus looks at the crowds following him and he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? The fear of man. See, the fear of man is a real problem. Seeking glory from people instead of from the Lord. Fearing them instead of him is a real problem. And we have to confront it if we're going to be his disciples. And so... Let's dig a little bit deeper, and let's ask this question. So what is the fear of man? And here's the way I want to put it to you. I want to say that the fear of man is living life on the horizontal axis. On the horizontal axis. You know this from math, basic math, vertical axis, horizontal axis. The fear of man is living life only on the horizontal axis. It's sourcing your life in the approval, love, support, etc. of other people, and trying to fill up your inner emptiness with people's love and acceptance, getting confidence from people from their love for you, from their support of you and acceptance of you and not from God. You could say fear of man is replacing God with people. Ed Welch, who's a counselor at CCEF in in Philly, wrote a great book. It's so compelling uh, that I read the whole thing this week. Uh, And it was almost like a conversion experience for me. I I don't say I'm serious. It really was because this is so profound for me personally. And the title of the book is marvelous. It's this, When People Are Big... And God is small. And the title of the book is The Lesson. That the fear of man is being controlled by what people think of you. Instead of what God thinks of you. And putting your hope and trust in people and not in God. And it's the very definition of idolatry. Now, I, I did, this was not a part of my notes. And I only thought about having the courage to do this later. And so I might bumble through this. But I wanted to say... Uh, so that you can you know, know me and where I'm coming from. Six and a half years ago when we planted this church, um, I planted, we planted this church with me as, as the pastor of the church in the grips of the fear of man. I mean, something I still struggle with. So uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the features of the story of my life is um, being scared to death of people abandoning me and leaving me um, you know, I come from a home where divorce happened, and so I grew up really quickly and felt like I had to, you know, do it on my own, and there was nobody there that was going to take care of me. That's not to cast myself for pity or any, just so that you understand part of the story of my life. And so what's carried over into adulthood for me was a deep and desperate need for other people to bear the burden. And, and listen, church planting is a huge burden, and it lands square on your shoulders. And so the easiest thing to do, and Jeff and I talked about this this week, is when you're doing this great thing to look around you and say, man, at least I've got, you know, Joe, and at least I've got Henry, and at least I've got these people around here who are going to help me bear this burden until those people 
uh, begin to leave and go do something else, or they begin to not show the level of commitment that you think they should. Do you see what I'm saying? And you begin to say, oh man, I really am alone. And what happens with that is what I've done to people, and if you're here in the room and I've done this to you, then please forgive me, and, and if we need to you know, work through this together, let's do it. But when I put my hope and, and, and um, my hope for just a, a friend or somebody who will bear the burden of ministry with me so I don't feel quite so alone, and, I, and I'm hopeful for people, here's going to be the person that's going to do this with me, and then for whatever reason they don't meet up, you know, live up to my expectations, then what I do is I have to withdraw myself because now I feel really vulnerable and scared. And it has this imprint upon my relationships. But do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm doing? I feel a burden. And the immediate place that I think about going with the burden, whether it's raising kids or whether it's planning a church or whether it's a business or whatever it might be, when I look around me to other people to think, oh, at least some of the burden can fall off of me onto them, I'm not doing what the Scripture tells me to do, which is cast your cares upon him. Because he cares for you. People become the solution to the problems of my life. And it's the fear of man. It's idolatry. And what this text says is that it's the thing handicapping our obedience. And so we have to dig deep this morning in order to root it out by way of repentance. And so here are some questions that that Ed Welch asks in the book. Not only the experience that I've characterized for you in those, you know, brief, just a brief snapshot of, of my own life. But he says some of these things. Are you overcommitted? Is it hard for you to say no? People-pleasing is a euphemism for the fear of man. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Do you leave a meeting and you, know, you start to wonder what everyone else thought of you and even begin to make assumptions about what they think that are completely baseless? Are you easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie? Especially little white lies for fear of what people will think if they know the truth. Are you aloof with people? Are you overly private? Do you like to keep a distance? Can you keep people at a distance? Are you jealous of other people? See, jealousy is being controlled by others. It's a form of the fear of man. Or do, you, do other people just make you angry or depressed? Do they drive you crazy? Do you have a long list of people that you're annoyed with? If so, they're probably the controlling center of your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if any or all of those things are true of you, it's a sure sign that you're living with the fear of man. People are too big, and God is too small, and it's a real problem. And so I want to just apply this in a couple of ways. See, the, the problem that Jesus is steering us away from here in, in living with the fear of man is that, on the one hand, the fear of man will make you a coward. It saps your courage. Isn't that what he refers to here in verse 4? Look there, don't fear those who kill the body. What's the implication Jesus is making? He says, following me will include confrontation with powers and authorities that will result in rejection and even the possibility of physical violence, but probably not for many of us. However, I'm fairly confident that your discipleship to him will probably require that you speak the truth and confront people uh, that may mean the end of that relationship, and so to do so you need courage. And the fear of man, needing people to like you and to think you are nice, is the obstacle to courage. But on the other hand, not only does the fear of man make you a coward, it also really makes you selfish. You will be sinfully uh, this way. Listen to this. This was, this was the, the line from the book that just landed on me that I couldn't get it over. Uh, in, the, in the book, Ed Welch says, you will need people for yourself more than you will love them for the glory of God. You will need people for you more than you will love them. You'll be needing people more than you'll be loving them. 
And the task that Jesus gives us and how he desires to free us from self-concern and the love of man is that we would find ourselves needing people less and loving them more. Do you hear that? Needing people less, loving them more. And I just wrote so much repentance in that. So much repentance for me personally. Because you see, if you love somebody because you need them, that's not love, that's manipulation. It's selfishness. And if you're mad at a friend because they've not met your expectations and your needs aren't being met, if the temperature of your relationship is regulated by their performance, then you need them more than you love them. And that's unhealthy, that's idolatry. The other person, and this sounds so strange to say, but it's so true, the other person has become one of your gods. So the fear of man, it's a real problem. But what is the solution? And the solution in this text that Jesus points us to is to learn the fear of God in the process of unlearning the fear of man. For God, if the problem is that people are big and God is small, then the solution obviously is that God would become big and people would be small. And so the fear of the Lord then, fear of the Lord is living your life on the vertical axis. That sorting your life's energy and God's love and approval and trusting his power and his love, that's the solution to avoiding the leaven of the Pharisees. If If the fear of man is replacing God with people, then the fear of the Lord is literally repentance that looks like you begin to replace people with him. When you feel lonely, that he would be the friend that you turn to. When you're burdened, that you would cast your cares upon his shoulders. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? See, this inner sense of emptiness and need that we're talking about this morning that we feel is it really is just the distant rumblings that we are not right with God. Psychological and emotional needs are an expression of a deeper and more fundamental spiritual need to be rightly related to him in Christ. Low self-esteem, which we love to talk about in our culture, is really just the distant echo of the law of God that says that in ourselves we cannot measure up to the law of God. And so to learn the fear of the Lord then means that we see ourselves primarily. In every relationship, in every place that we go, we see ourselves primarily as sinners who have offended God. And therefore, what happens is we stop asking. You know, everybody's asking, well, how do I, how do I get my needs met? Why don't I have any friends? Why doesn't anybody invite me to the party? What, why, don't, why, why am I not included in the group? We stop asking questions like that, and instead we start to ask, why am I so concerned about myself all the time? The fear of the Lord is a glimpse of his blinding holiness and beauty that leaves you preoccupied with him, and his glory, and also self-forgetful. But I want to dig dig into this just a little bit more, because I want you to see how Jesus expresses this. He says, verse 5, if you would look there with me, he says, Do not fear man, but fear him after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I, I read that and I say, well, no kidding, of course. I mean, of course, he's talking about God, who is infinitely angry at sin and who is just, and will send some to hell. But in the very next breath, look at how it changes. He says, fear him, verse 6. Are not two sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are, more, you are of more value than many sparrows. Well, you know, which is it? Is God a fierce judge, or is he a tender caretaker? Is he the almighty or a father? Should we fear him, or should we not? I'm confused. Jesus, what are you trying to tell me here, and and the funny thing is, is the mashup in those verses is the key to understanding what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord can't mean that we live terrified of him. That's part of it, of course, but it can't only be that because 
That would just make us more afraid of everything. But the fear of the Lord is a fear that takes away every other fear. And so the psalmist, in the scripture that Joe read to us at the beginning of our time together this morning, says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Is that something to be afraid of? The idea that God would take a record of sins, keep it? Everybody, let's do this. Everybody, can you do this with me? So I know you're alive out there? Mm-hmm. That's bad. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? You would think that I fear you would be at the end of that statement. But it's not. It's at the end of the next one. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. And therefore you're feared. So according to the psalmist, you start out afraid, but you don't end there. So growing in the fear of the Lord is actually the process that refers to the change of seeing God in his holiness and glory and him being a terror to you, to seeing God also in his mercy and compassion becoming a treasure to you. And so I've used this illustration before, but have you ever had a close call on a car? Driving along, of course you're not looking at your phone because that's illegal and no one would do that. (laughs) Only about 9 out of 10 people that you pass, myself included unfortunately, but I have a 14-year-old you know what is the best remedy to, to doing things you're not supposed to do in a car is have a 15-year-old that you're training to drive. And so I'm constantly saying, he's like, you're on your phone. Yeah, you're not allowed to do this when you're driving, but I, somehow I am because I've been driving for 30 years, you know, 20 years or whatever it is. But so, you know, you're, you're driving along in the car and you get distracted and you look up and literally you're about to slam into the back of the car that's stopped in front of you and you slam on the brakes and you stop just short. What happens to you in that moment? You sit there and for literally your knees are shaking and your whole body, you're, you know, you're breathing very hard. Your heart is pounding in your chest. Even though you're safe, you're still terrified at the, at, at the thought of what almost was. Right? You know what I mean? You know that experience? No, the psalmist is saying, the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, I'm done for. I have no chance. But if you forgive. See, he had a close call and he was still shook up uh, and, and yet, it was the, the almost was and the close call of, of God coming against him for his sins. And yet, at the last moment, being, being extended mercy and grace uh, that caused him to fear the Lord. And that's what it means to have the fear of the God before you. That you can't quite shake the feeling of what almost was. And therefore, you never stop being amazed at the mercy that you've been shown. God is not safe, C.S. Lewis told us. But he is good. He is the one that casts souls into hell, and he is the rememberer of sparrows and the counter of hares. <laughs> and those two things held in tension. That is the glory that can dislodge your self-preoccupation because it points you to your deepest need and also the solution. Your deepest need, my deepest need, my deepest need is that God is a judge and I am guilty before him. Who can stand? How can I be rightly related to him? That's my deepest need. And of course the solution is the cross of Jesus Christ which we proclaim and sing about every Sunday where justice and mercy kiss. The cross is the great what could have been. It should have been me there. It should have been me being punished, facing hell for my sins and yet Jesus stepped in the way and took my punishment for me and it's the great what could have been in my life that changes the orientation to the rest of my life from that point forward. You know, as a kid, growing up in Florida, 
Uh, I remember I, I, when I was really, really little, I used to be super afraid of thunderstorms because th- thunderstorms in Florida can be pretty scary. The wind starts to blow and the lightning's coming down with great frequency and it's just kind of a very nervous and scary experience. And so I just remember being really afraid of thunderstorms when they would come. That is until I lived through my first hurricane. Right? And trees are falling and literally the house, it feels like it's about to fall apart when 130 miles an hour is coming across the state or wherever it might be. And after that first hurricane that I lived through, the thunderstorms didn't feel like such a big deal anymore. That's what Jesus is saying here. Ed Welch, in the book that I referred to, he says, If you've ever walked among giant redwoods, you will never again be overwhelmed by the size of a dogwood tree. Or if you've been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. If you've been in the presence of Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. So one last thing then. See, the image that Jesus uses to pinpoint both the fear of man and the fear of God in this passage is judgment. It's the backdrop to the beginning of Luke 12, this image of judgment. So Jesus begins by warning. We've seen, verse 1, about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is idolatry. And what's the solution? How do we not fall into the same trouble and live with the fear of man? It's what comes in the next two verses. Look there in verses 2 through 3, because this is the significant part, I think. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, that's absolutely terrifying, is it not? Okay, let's try this again. Ready? This. That is absolutely terrifying. It's the image of judgment. And here's the thing. Don't think. Don't think that if you're in Christ, you're exempt from this. What, 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 what? <laughs> don't think. Just because your faith is in Jesus, I, I, I don't think the Bible teaches that. Instead, what the Bible teaches is that the gospel transforms judgment from something that is terrifying and it turns, into something, turns it into something that we can expect and even rejoice in. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no threat of condemnation. Okay, Amen. Okay? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe that. But that does not mean that there isn't judgment. What? Okay. It doesn't mean there's no judgment. It just means that the gospel transforms the idea of judgment from an experience where you are condemned into an experience where you're finally known. I may be oversimplifying a little bit. I'm going to risk it. Let me say it again. What the gospel does is it changes the threat of judgment, the impending sense of judgment, from an experience where you are condemned and into an experience where you're finally known. And the reason that you don't need to be afraid of being finally known is because on the cross, he knew all the way to the bottom of you, and he loved you, and he died for you, and that's, and that's the truth of that event. Okay? But that, see, that's the problem with the Pharisees. They're insecure. They want to be applauded for all their hard work. They want somebody to pay attention to what they're doing and say, well done, good and faithful servant. They feel invisible and they want to be known and so they put on a show. But instead, what we're told in the Bible that followers of Jesus do is we go through life unnoticed and overlooked. And the more the gospel begins to take root in you, the more content you will be to stay quiet, to stay in the background. The Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to live quietly. Don't draw attention to yourself so forth. If you come at life like the Pharisees empty and needing to be filled, you'll be loud and very public. 
If you come at life like the Pharisees, empty and needing to be filled, you'll need people, but not love them. But if you're full and already overflowing, then you're content to be ignored. You don't need people to notice you. If you're full and already overflowing, you can need people less and love them more. And See, a life lived from a heart full of God's love and overflowing and love for others in the providence of God is most times hidden from view, and it's content to let the others do the talking. But what supports you in this way of living? It's just this, is to know that you're known, that God knows you, that the hairs of your head are numbered. Do you see that there? Jesus says, he won't forget you. The sparrows which are sold for a penny are not forgotten, and you are far more valuable than sparrows, so you will not be forgotten either. God may be the only one that knows, he may be the only one that sees, but there is coming a day when everything that was hidden will be brought out into the open for everyone to see. Listen, every misunderstanding of your life will be cleared up. Every good deed that went unnoticed will be celebrated forever and ever and ever. And that's the day of judgment. In judgment, God will see all the way to the very bottom of you and he will reveal it. And that sounds absolutely frightening, doesn't it? Because in our sin, we are scared to death of being exposed and being known. But when we are glorified and all of the vestiges of our sin are gone and no more the transformation that will happen in that experience is in that moment to be known will be glorious. It will be like coming home. It will be the ultimate healing of our hearts. And here's the thing. I've thought a lot about this, and I'm almost done. I'm convinced of this, that we should think about judgment. Most of the time when we do, when we think about it, we think of all the secret sins that will be revealed. And that's part of what Jesus says will happen. But here's the thing. What about all the secret good that went unnoticed, even by ourselves? that is then brought to light and celebrated. And I think, I think many of us are going to be caught by surprise when we finally see ourselves for who we truly are and the repentance of that moment will be that we will have to admit that we lived our lives far too critical of ourselves and other people. You think that's possible? I really do. And you see, this is the power to overcome the fear of man. At the cross of Jesus, we were judged... And we were loved. And that means that judgment for the Christian is never separated from love. And so at the final judgment, we will be judged, but also loved. Not condemned, but known. Known. And there's a power of that. There's a power in that when it comes into your life. The psalmist sings in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. He knows me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What's man? The Lord knows me. The Lord is on my side. I no longer have any fear of man. That's the heart that's been set free to follow Jesus on the road to the cross. Oh, Lord, come do that in us. Come do it in me. It's such a work of grace that I need for him to do in my heart. And so let's pray that he would do that in us, can we? So, Lord, we pray. As your people gather here this morning, and we confess, uh, for most of us, I think I can confess corporately for us that we are full of the love of man rather than uh, in the fear of man, rather than the fear of the Lord. Uh, And it's caused so much turmoil and and, uh, breakdown in our lives. And so we confess and we seek to turn away from our fear of men and to turn again to learn the fear of the Lord. And so would you, Father, even in these last moments as we sing together, would you um, give us a glimpse of your glory, of your justice and your holy hatred of sin, and at the same time of your mercy and your compassion to those who, who cry out to you, to you in their need. Would we be captivated by the what almost was and see in the Lord Jesus Christ, our great hero, the captain of our salvation, the one who stepped in 
to take the punishment that should have come down upon us, to be sentenced to hell in our place, the mercy that is ours because of his great work, would we see in these moments both of those things and would it melt our heart uh, and, and cause us to leave this place today preoccupied with you and your glory and self-forgetful that we might live faithfully as your disciples who take up their cross and follow after you. We pray these things for your sake. Amen. What will occasion us to sing like that on that day is the event where everything that to that point has been hidden will finally be made known. Now, if you're here not a Christian... Uh, then the thought that that thought should be should be a terror to you because your 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 plan right now is to go and to stand before him on your own merit. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Right. So repentance would be to turn away from that strategy and to turn to Jesus to be clothed in His righteousness. Because for all of those who have turned to Him in faith and repentance, uh, we come before God on the, that great day in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what that means is is that the event is changed. It's transformed. It is made a cause of celebration. Uh, and, and it is ultimately the reality to know that there's a day where we'll be fully known, where God, where God will reward us according to our deeds. Uh, that is the great remedy for this problem of the fear of man in our lives. So again in this moment, receive the promise of this benediction, that the Father loves you, that he's for you, all the way to the very end where he will finally uh, make known to you and to the entire world all of the, the beauty that he has worked into your life. So receive these words. Uh, may they turn your heart towards him in faith, and may it be the undoing of the fear of man in you as he sends you out to go and live as his disciples. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.